everybody. My name is Sir Topham Hatt, and it is my pleasure to inform you that you're about to listen to the Right on Track podcast. All aboard! Good morning, afternoon, evening, etc., etc., and welcome to the 40th episode of Right on Track, the podcast which is devoted to all things Thomas the Tank Engine and friends. I, of course, am Tom Parry, and joining me, as always, on, in this wonderful endeavor is my good pal, Connor Jonas. Hello, Connor. Hello, Parry. How are you going this day? I'm doing as well as I can, given the current situation. <laughs> and I'm also joined by my other good pal, Tom Denham. Hello, Master Denham. Hello. We're doing very well, exceptionally well, because we have been joined. We are graced with yet another guest host here on the Rise on Track podcast. They're coming out of the woodwork. They really are. It's just we, they've been growing exponentially like a fungus. Uh, and uh, today <laughs> we are going to say hello to one of our very first fans of the podcast. It's none other than Matthew Bellis. Good. Hello, Matt. Welcome. Hello, guys. Thank you so much for having me on. It's an absolute honor and a privilege to be with you guys on this special podcast. And it's an honor for you to join us, of course. And congratulations, Matt. You are officially our first guest from Wales to be on Right on Track. Woohoo! Slowly taking over the world. We are. We've become an institution. (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to think that we are. And... And on today's episode, we are covering the final three stories of Thomas and Friends, the fifth series, all of which take place on the Scardlowy Railway. Connor, why don't you tell us what those stories are? Will do, Parry. The three stories that we are going to be covering today are Duncan Gets Spooked, Rusty and the Boulder, and Snow. Just one word, Snow. So... Snow. <laughs> There's no time like the present to cover them all. (laughs) Exactly right, Denim. So, why don't we, before we get into those episodes, first talk a little bit more to our wonderful guest, Matthew. Matt. Where does your love of Thomas come from? um, When did you start enjoying the show? What's your earliest memory? Hello, guys. Well, it's a strange one, really, because I've been into Thomas since as long as I can remember. And I used to sneakily watch it when I was out of the age, as everybody does. Uh, well, we're all guilty of it, let's be honest. Yeah, uh, but it just definitely. stemmed from there, really. It stemmed from there, really, and it's never really stopped. Uh, but since having Ethan, I took him to a Thomas Day at Langhoffen Railway, which is a standard gauge. Um and then it just exploded from there because obviously now I've got little and I've got an excuse to watch it. And now that also spurred me on to volunteer at the Clangothan Railway. And then that spurred me on to volunteer at the Talachlin because that's obviously where all the narrow gauge are. So it's just gone boom, if you like, since, uh, since becoming an adult. Okay. And um, what would you say your favourite season is? Tough one. 
Okay, so my favourite season as a kid was season three, all the way. I'm, I'm a, I love season three. Uh, I think the ratio was good. I just loved it. But as an adult, I've actually gone to season four. Okay. I think okay. season four yeah. is better as an adult. Uh, I love the way it looks. Oh, it's just such a beautiful scene, the way they've done it. Model making was fantastic. So, yeah, yeah. And I'm a Henry boy. I'm a Henry man myself. Yeah. Oh, yeah. we got another one. <laughs> oh, it's a tough, Henry, Henry, it's Henry. a tough call between Edward and Henry. It's so close, but I think Henry just pips it for me. Another question we have for you, Matt. Do you have a favourite episode of all time? Yes, I do, and it's Toad Stands By. Oh, oh yes. good boys. Love that episode. That's my favourite episode. I don't know why it just is. Yeah. Um, love it. And to extend on that, do you have a favourite of um the Railway Series books as well? Ooh, favourite... Ooh, good question. Probably the Flying Kipper in the book as well. Oh, Henry yeah. the Green Engine. Mm. Henry the Green Engine, the Flying Kipper. I love that story. Such oh, a good one. Brilliant. The artwork I... as well is pretty good. The, the... Oh, yeah, Dobby does a wonderful job. The illustration of the crash in the Flying Kipper always threw me off because in it it looks like henry is just falling into the snow with like snow flying everywhere but then at the same time you've got a man on a track on the tracks chastising him about the spilt <laughs> cocoa and then you've got um uh, one of the uh, uh, one of the you know crew members falling into the snow at the time big poof but then you've got two other crew members who've already walked so mm. it it, it that illustration always confuses me because I don't know what stage in time it's at. It's at all stages. It's not an episode of Doctor <laughs> Who, Denim. I'm so sorry about it. Okay. The TARDIS, while it's big on the out on the inside, not on the outside. Henry would would just hit the wall. Okay. Maybe so as sorry. as soon as the crash happened. The guard had to go around and go, just look what you did to my Coco. <laughs> no. <laughs> now I shall have to cook some more. Thank you so much, Matt, for telling us a little bit about yourself. Uh, we'll add that to the database oh. of all other previous guests, which we'll then use to steal their identities. But <gasps> now... not again. Not again. I'm not going to ask that. Now <laughs> we're going to move into our stories for today. Our first story that we're covering today is Duncan Gets Spooked. And in this clip, uh, Peter Samus had an accident. Duncan has teased him, so Rusty decides to tell him a story that will make his funnel quiver. Duncan was delighted with Peter Sam's dilemma. Fancy no securing your trucks on a hill. They'll come back to spook you in your special funnel. Woo, woo, woo. And who's to say that you're not afraid of ghosts, Snap Rusty? Pah! Ghosts! Things that go bump in the night are rubbish! Well, I'll tell you a story that'll make your funnel quiver, Rusty said. A long time ago, a little engine was returning home. It was a misty, moonlit night. As the engine crossed the old iron bridge, he suddenly lost control and plunged over the side into the swamps below. He was never found again. 
But many a workman will tell you that when the moon is full, they have seen the little engine trying to get home, but he never reaches the other side. So what do you think of that, Duncan? Ha! Nonsense, replied Duncan, and he puffed away. What a spooky story that was from my favourite narrow gauge engine, Rusty, who is wonderful, small, and has got a small face, doesn't matter what anyone else says. <laughs> you heard it here first. Well, you say um, he's got a small face, Connor, but uh, we actually get two models of Rusty in this very story, and this, um, with me, almost immediately raises one of the biggest issues with Series 5. It's that there's no correlation between the bigger models and the smaller model it it just it's like there's one model of rusty there's a different model of rusty one's got a bigger face one's got a smaller face okay what's going on there guys honestly what's going on there well tom i'm glad you asked because when a train um gets particularly happy they release endorphins uh, inside <laughs> the motor of the engine which releases chemicals in the gray fleshy face which makes them larger and bigger. And you'll notice this in the Jack and the Pack episodes as well. Thomas and Percy have this weird kind of uh, look about them that you don't see anywhere else. And that's because of this uh, particular chemical reaction inside the anatomy of a loco. I was hoping for a more serious answer, so I I guess I'll just have to, you know, answer it myself. Would you like me to provide it? (laughs) Um, Okay, then, Connor, go ahead. Thank you, Denim. But the real reason is, during the production of Series 4, a lot of the crew had issues with the engines because, being on a smaller scale, they had to try and fit the smoke mechanisms, the eyes, the remote controls, the motors, everything in a very, very small chassis. And then, of course, because they were smaller, they were also lighter, they would frequently derail and were overall harder to film with. So, going into the next season, Series 5, they moved to larger-scale models of the engines, which were basically the same size as Thomas and Percy, except modelled to look like the narrow-gauge engines. And in Series 5, what would occur is whenever there was a scene interacting between the narrow gauge and standard gauge engines, they would use their Series 4 models, which accounts for the inaccuracy seen in Duncan Gets Spooked and the following episodes that we'll cover today, where the engines are seen with small faces and then they're seen with larger ones, such as Rusty, and tons of other model inaccuracies between the two. So. I understand why they've made the move to bigger models. Um, but as we covered in our interview of Rob Gold Gallias back in season four, yeah, and as Connor was saying, smaller models would struggle to produce steam and move and whatnot. But it doesn't make sense to have the smaller models and the bigger models in this story, though, because everything takes place on the Scarlowy Railway. We don't get to see them interacting with the bigger mainline engine so to speak. And it's really jarring to see them jump between the two. What I really like about this, though, with the bigger models, there's room to add a lot more detail. And I think these episodes particularly allow that justice. 
I think even down to um, the paint applications on the models and all, all the green foliage around them too is really nice to see. It's also weird to note that on the, the troublesome uh, slate wagons that are used to collect all, all the wood, I'm pretty sure that they use the stand gauge troublesome truck faces on those same wagons. They do. Yeah, I've noticed that. And that is exactly right. But to answer your question, Parry, as to why they are using these smaller models, despite there being no standard gauge engine nearby for size comparison, is because they're simply reusing sets. All the sets for the larger engines, uh, larger scale narrow gauge engines in Series 5, you'll notice, are distinctly... Uh, one track wide, and they're very small, and because of that, there are tons of different inaccuracies going along with it. So, for example, you'll know at the start of this episode, which is where we'll begin our synopsis, uh, you have got Rusty and Peter Sam going up a hill, with Rusty being a banker, for Peter Sam as he pulls some troublesome slate wagons as the railway clears away some branches. Now, this is a singular piece of track, but when you see the later yard scenes, such as Duncan at the incline or the engines at the sheds, it is a much more elaborate environment. They're all seen together. So in those cases, they are simply reusing sets that would work in the smaller gauge because that is built like a narrow gauge railway. I was, I was quickly going to say, one of the other interesting things, I guess, in the production history of Thomas as the series progresses is that to avoid any more issues like this later in future, um, I think between series 9 and 11 and 12, um, they make even bigger models of the token three favourites, Thomas, Percy and James, so they can use these models with the already bigger narrow gauge models that they've used um and i gotta say these are some of the best looking thomas episodes ever really i i, I would actually have to agree with you and i do get where you're coming from though then i mean seeing those we say large um narrow gauge engines which is with the even larger models of thomas percy and james yeah it's it's quite a sight to behold and i yeah, quite enjoy it too uh where we oh yes so what about the rest of the episode connor what else happens after rusty has helped uh peter sam up to have a drink of water the troublesome slate trucks decide to cause trouble and break away so the coupling snaps from peter sam and they roll down a hill they pass a sign that says caution steep bends and ravine ahead they don't decide to slow down because they obviously can't read. As they cross an old bridge, they suddenly jump off the bridge inexplicably and they fall down into the ravine alow. Alow? Below. 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 Under the ravine. Under the sea. <clears throat> Later, back at the sheds, Duncan is teasing Peter Sam for losing his trucks. Rusty then decides to give a cautionary tale to Duncan about the old bridge where the trucks derailed in order to support Peter Sam. Well, what actually happens is that um, 
Duncan says that the trucks are going to haunt Peter Sam, and Rusty says, well, hold on a minute, you know, there's, an- there's another ghost there on that bridge, and that's what leads into the clip we played. This is true. Exactly. So what I've never understood is how is it Peter Sam's fault that the trucks broke away? That's quite right. No, you make an excellent point again, Matt. And um, it's not the signalman's fault either, we should stress. No. Um, Thank you. <laughs> so it's the fault of, you know, the coupling crew, shall we say. Or maybe not even necessarily the crew, because as we see in the clip, the coupling snaps. It actually breaks apart. So I would more so say hmm. it's maintenance, looking after the trucks. The problem is, though, if you're taking out a line of trucks like that, it's up to the driver and the fireman, being the engine crew, to make sure that those trucks are safe to take out when uh, attaching them to the train. That is fair enough. And that's another good point, actually, because there are no brake vans on the Skylowy Railway. Well, at least not in the context of this story. No. So, yeah, they, they, they would have had no chance of stopping the trucks anyway. But yes... After Rusty's ghost story, Peter Sam's driver and fireman hatch a plan. And this is one of my favourite parts about this episode, where it brings in entirely the human element, and it is the engine crews of the engines that drive the story. Very much so. And I absolutely adore that. So, Peter Sam and uh, Peter Sam... So, Peter Sam's driver and fireman decide to consult with Duncan's engine crew, where they then carry out a plan. Later, the next day or day after, time is not clear and an illusion, what occurs is Duncan goes over the old bridge to work at the quarry. Afterwards, he's returning late one night, and as he stops on the bridge, when the moon is full and the fog rises, He starts to see some dancing lights, and his engine crew decide to drop a large rock into the river in the ravine below. That therefore results in Duncan getting spooked, where he runs home and they ask if he's spooked, and he says, No, I'm asleep! Actually, Matt does the best Duncan voice, so I think... (laughs) Do you want to give it a go, Matt? No, I'm asleep! I promise you! (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> thank you man <laughs> fantastic <laughs> and then it's good, we've, it's good that we've finally got somebody on the podcast who can do a proper Scottish accent because the oh, of us hey. I'll, try, I'll try my best the problem is though I'm I'm a bit of a voice actor so I have to do quite an abundance of actions and impressions late so oh sorry I know that's not relevant but... we just have you on all the time Matt it's just <laughs> Any t- <laughs> You've become the foreface of that. time we need... Sorry, go on. Yeah, every time... I was going to say, any time we need somebody to do an accent, we'll just call on Matt, and then that's it. Mm. Oh, <laughs> I've been done. working on the... I love, I must admit, I'm not a huge fan <laughs> of the CGI series, personally, but the... Um, in, oh, what's the, one, what's the one with Luke? Oh, what's it called? Oh, Blue Man and Miss... Blue Mountain Mystery. I absolutely love Scar. Scar Louis really deep Welsh accent. It's absolutely amazing. Yes. <laughs> Slow down, Renee. Slow down, Renee. 
don't need no pain. If they did anything <laughs> right, they really nailed the voices of the narrow gauge engines. It's it's just a strange contrast. That's all. I don't know if you guys have heard of a, a guy called Windsor Davis. Yeah. Who's a Welsh accent. He used to do Ain't Our Hot Mum. Uh, a few things like that. I haven't heard of him personally. No. YouTube him because their voice is identical. Even though Windsor Davis, God rest him, was long gone, the voices are identical. There's actually an episode called Bradford the Brake Van. I don't know if you've seen that one. Yes. Yeah, yes, I've seen that one. But, yes. Uh, you know where, he, uh, where the trucks start kicking off and he goes, um, uh, Not on my watch. No, I don't mind, dear. Oh, yes. oh, never mind. Not on my watch, oh, dear. How sad. Never mind. He says that. And that's Windsor Davis's famous quote. That's his famous quote from all his TV shows. Oh, that's but, so uh, good. He must have watched that, got his voice for it, and done it. And it was like, because I was watching it thinking, Hang on a minute. <laughs> Sorry, I've completely gone off tangent there. I do apologise. No, it is a really good episode. This is um, what we do on the Right on Trek podcast. We frequently go off track, and it's up to us to try and get the conversation back to where it was before. Um, it's in the name. <laughs> yes. So, long story short, uh, there is a ghost story, and Duncan gets spooked by the ghost story. And I have to say, this moment is one of the best musically scored moments in all of Thomas' history. Oh, absolutely, including uh, the ghost story that Rusty tells, which shares the same mm. music. It is one of the best themes, and like the ghost train story itself and the same event sort of occurring with Duncan's encounter with the ghost is absolutely fantastic it looks great it sounds great it's perfectly executed there's something about this sequence as well that's so visually striking i'm not too sure what cameras they used uh, but the larger scale models on the old iron bridge look so beautiful at night time eerily beautiful some might say and uh, coming back to the music I particularly love the ditty that plays when Peter Sam loses his trucks. It's not your typical runaway theme. It's just kind of like a playful jaunt. Yeah, it was definitely a scene that stuck out in my childhood and it wasn't necessarily a big moment, but that just shows you how tremendous Series 5 was. Hmm. I, I want to ask you, Denham, was your first experience of this story watching it on your Spooks and Surprises VHS? It may have been, but it also could have been when it aired on TV, probably in 1999 for Australia. Okay, then. Um, what, what about you, Connor? What was your first memory of seeing this particular story? My first memory of seeing this story was on the Series 5 DVD set. Okay. The, and um, since you're the oldest one here... Um... When did you first come across the story? Was it much later when um, Ethan came into the world? Probably when I was in my 20s, if I'm honest. <laughs> there we uh, go. Confession. I haven't seen it since. I'm sorry, in adulthood, not childhood. No, that's perfectly okay. Um, I'd also want to ask you, Matt, what is it that draws you, and particularly what is it that draws Ethan into this story? Why does he love it so much? Um, he loves anything spooky, like his other favourite episodes, actually in season five, and that's Haunted Henry. He loves anything Halloween-y or... Oh, yes. He was born in October. Mm. So I don't know if it's just uh, 
it was born a Halloween. Uh-huh. So the first thing you've seen is like pumpkins and spooky things. So uh-huh. I that's... You may need to check whether or not he was born on a full moon, or else you may Ooh, have trouble on your hands. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll have a look at that. You made me think that. <laughs> <laughs> but, but now, this episode is absolutely fantastic. Like, I mean, I, I, I'm clearly saying right now that this is my favorite ghost story out of the show. Yes, I'll, I'll agree with yeah. that. Yeah. Ooh, big call. I agree with that too. Okay, so I think I'm alone in saying that it's not the best. Okay, that's all right. You know, life goes on. We all have our own valid opinions here at Right on Track. Yes, we do indeed. And we should also um, make note of the fact that this story is, of course, an original. It was co-written with the help of David Maidment, who was the railway advisor throughout Series 5. This is also... also... I'm sorry. You know, you go first. I was going to say, it is also the very last television episode that would have his involvement because he wasn't hired beyond season five or when um, Hit Entertainment took over. Oh. That is exactly what I was going to say. Oh, there we are. Yes. Take him to it. There we go. <laughs> um, have you got any other fun facts for us, Connor, or have I said them all already? Uh, there, there, there is one other, not really fact, but more of a hypothesis with Duncan Gets Spooked, and that is the ghost train. Oh. So the story that Rusty tells is of a little engine, same class as Tadlin and Scarloe, is returning home one night, is crossing the bridge when he falls off it into the ravine below. And this story is apparently recounted by workmen working nearby the bridge when the moon is full at night. Now, I have an idea that maybe a possible inspiration for this story is a 1926 film. Uh, Now, there aren't many stories out there about an engine, a single solitary engine without any carriages, passengers, or freight falling into a ravine, into a river, or falling off a bridge. Uh, There are very little accidents either that have got such a thing occurring. However, this was um, a 1926 film by Buster Keaton called... Uh, 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 I'm going to preempt what you say here. Was it called The General? Exactly. Called The General. Absolutely brilliant film. Brilliant um, film. And in that film, uh, classic wet American West locomotive is on a wooden trestle bridge when there is abrupt chaos and the engine falls into the river below. Now, of course, the exact scenario isn't mirrored. Uh, There are no explosives in the bridge. The bridge doesn't collapse in this story, and it isn't a standard-gauge American locomotive that is falling. But it is the only other possible case I found in my research of a solitary locomotive falling into a river. You're ignoring um, Back to the Future Part 3, Connor. That had passengers, did it not? Or coaches? (laughs) No, No, it didn't. 
Um, I think you'll find what happened is they detached the passenger carriages from the train. The train was left to speed at 88 miles an hour into the ravine below. That is another good point. This is true. However, I wouldn't say it fell off a bridge because a bridge didn't really exist. Oh, true. It was it was only half yes. built. Yeah. So my bad. But <laughs> no, um, no, no. That coming. Yeah. Still a good moment in film history. And um, just on that point as well, I think that again the general train crash might have served inspiration for the one in Back to the Future Part Three. So. Um, and as Matt was saying as well, the general absolutely classic comedy film, if you have to see any Buster Keaton film, then definitely get onto that one. He did all his own stunts. He drove the train himself, didn't he? He learned to drive the locomotive. Yeah. That he film. did. He, he did. He was very much the Jackie Chan of his time, Buster Keaton. That's a yes. very good uh, equivalent that you've put there. Mm, that is. Oh, it was... Um, a question. Because... Much like uh, Keaton, uh, Jackie Chan, he directed, he wrote, he produced, he did his own stunts, he was acting. Yeah, a lot of his work is actually inspired by the early silent era comedy film. So yeah, it, it's amazing how the film world, it's sort of, you know, it, it's not a straight line. It's not one thing referring to another. It's sort of like everything's to another thing all at once and it just works its way around. It's absolutely fascinating. Now, one... Uh, I, I've got a few more comments about this episode. Um, one is the wonderful dialogue and writing in this episode, such as the comedic line from Duncan on No, I'm Asleep. That is hilarious in the way it is... Uh, written and delivered by both and all uh, narrators. And then the final line of the episode is so dark where Duncan opened his eyes to look for his driver just to make sure he was still there. Oh, chills. (laughs) It's so eerie. I love it. it, it, And I love the idea on how we really have an engine scared in the TV show, apart from in the spooky-related episodes. And here, he is so scared that he's worried that either himself or his friends or crew are suddenly going to disappear. Yes. And, and he's being traumatised by it, and I do have a greater theory behind that, but I'll touch on that later. Oh. Um, and another note is the fireflies that Duncan sees just before his driver throws a big rock uh, to mimic the sound of an engine falling into the um, water below. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. How they say falling into a ravine and there's a river at the bottom. Not just because yes. it's a ravine doesn't necessarily mean there's a body of... Well, anyway, I'm going off topic. It's topical. Oh, hardly. No, Connor, what Connor was saying was much more interesting. Rock falls into the ravine below. And just before this occurs, Duncan sees some fireflies dancing about. Now, Duncan apparently doesn't know what f- fireflies are. His driver does. And the line is, but to Duncan, they appeared in the shape of an engine. 
and a ghostly silhouette of an engine appears with little firefly dots before disassembling itself. Now, now this engine is actually in the design of a Class BB, uh, which is also the same as Dog, uh, <clears throat> Dolgoch, Reneus, and Smudger. So, for some reason, there is a Reneus appearing as a ghost engine when the model used for the engine that fell was Skarloey. Um, continuity error? Can we say that? I have a theory. Okay. That the engine that we see in the form of Fireflies uh, right before Duncan at the old Iron Bridge isn't necessarily Reneus, where it is in fact Smudger. I reckon since he's uh, probably now past his generator life, he's been dismembered across the island into bits and pieces. His, let's call it his spirit, lingers on around the narrow gauge railways on Sodor, and he's trying to give uh, Duncan a warning, and he embodies the form of Fireflies here. Ooh. That's a good theory. I, I, I'm sort of on the fence about... It being smudgers, spirit flying all around the place, but I do like the idea of an engine appearing to warn a Duncan of something. No, when I was growing up, I always saw the silhouette as Lady from Thomas and the Magic Railroad. I have no idea why. It it just looked like her to me. The gold dust. Yes. Ah. No, the fireflies do resemble a bit of gold dust, which um, <gasps> no, pay on no. I'm getting oh, my facts. Say, does that make Thomas and Magic Railroad canon? No, it does not. <laughs> I was waiting for that. I was waiting for that. <laughs> you could hear the excitement building. Yeah. Here's a question for you guys, Matt. Now would be a good time. No. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> Here's a question for you guys. Who do you reckon the engine is that actually falls off the old iron bridge? Ooh. Ooh. That's... So is the question is more so is the engine even real or is it just a story? Uh, oh, yeah. I actually have a slight theory on this. Oh yes, please, Matt, enlighten us. I reckon uh, don't, don't you mean a heard oh, cannon? Yes. A heard cannon. I hate cannon. <laughs> uh, my my hate cannon theory on this is that it's actually a Hunslet that was brought from the lower end of the Highland Railway. Uh, lower end of the Highland Railway. I know it's a bit of a continuity error, but you get what <laughs> I mean. So the Welsh Highland had uh, Hunslets, which are now used around Bala Lake. You know, like, um, like Alice. I don't know if you know who Alice is, but she's quite... I know who Alice is, yeah. Yeah, mm. so I reckon they brought one of them to the slate quarries to see how she performed, but had a mishap on the way. Oh, that is an interesting point. But um, I, I feel a very brief note should be made about Alice since we've mentioned her, and and this was actually um something that you told us, Matt, via our Facebook page. Yeah. <clears throat> Please message us. 
Uh, would you like to quickly share the story of Alice? Okay, so Alice was a quarry hunslet who lived uh, who lived in the North Wales region. She used to work on one of the many quarries up here. And uh, she was actually left exactly like Duke was, which is where my Duke theory comes from. Uh, she was left to basically there, and they took parts off her, and she was just left there to rot, unfortunately. But luckily, some enthusiasts found her and brought her down to Battle Lake and restored her completely. And that's where she's still working today. Which is a really nice story. But um, we mentioned yeah. Alice because Alice is a Hunslet, much like a Hunslet that was being mentioned. Now, I would love the idea about this ghost being real. However, I have a greater theory that more so uh, builds on the idea that this ghost isn't real. But um, plenty of other theories as to who this engine is. Uh, in Enterprising Engines 93 series, um, he often alludes to the idea that the engine that fell off the old iron bridge was Proteus. Oh, yes. And uh, oh. Proteus is a reoccurring character in his series with the magic lamp and lots of sparkles, not gold dust. And then... Oh. But then others allude to it being uh, some of the Reverend's uh, models on his Midsodal Railway layout that he used to have, such as Albert. And Tim. And Tim. So there are tons of other engines that it could be. But I'm still on the fence about it. Mm. Parry? Good theory, though. Uh, I don't know. Say it's landing. Well, you know, I, as a child, I would like to think it's Lady, but um, as an adult, you know, I think that Rusty's just telling Porky Pies, you know, just to spook Duncan. And it makes sense <laughs> if uh, it. Rusty's telling Duncan the story. If it's coming from Duncan's mind's eye, then if the engine looks like Scar Lowy, it would have to be engines who he's known and seen before. He can't just conjure the image mm. up in his mind. Because when we dream, the people that we only see in our dreams are people that we only really oh, yeah. know. Every dream uses yeah, pieces from real life as its inspiration, but don't think too far into it, else you'll begin to question what were those horrible monsters I saw in my nightmare, and where are they in real life? Don't think too far into it. And this this kind of thinking leans into another episode that we're going to talk about today yeah. as well. Oh, oh, so there's a lot of tying in today. Um but we've, we've talked about Duncan gets spooked a lot. We should really get on to our rankings, I reckon. Connor, why don't you kick us off? Ten. Oh, okay, ten right off the bat. Denim, what do you Whoa. think? Ten. Okay, I'm left in a very awkward position here. Um, Matt, go first. It's not awkward, it's your opinion. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, well, I do enjoy this very much. I love the soundtrack. The narration is great. Good. Um, give it a 10. 
Yeah, ten. No, no, I, I, but ha, 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 ha. not not so fast. Not so fast, you two. Um, <laughs> as I mentioned, I don't like the way how they switch between the smaller models and the larger models for the Scarlet Railway. I always found that quite distracting, and I think the ending as well. It doesn't really have a huge payoff. I was hoping, like Duncan being paid out, it would just be, you know, this spectacular calamity. And really, it's just like. You know, exactly as the episode says, he gets the title of the episode says, rather, he gets spooked. He doesn't get petrified. He doesn't get terrified. He doesn't change his way. He just gets frightened a tiny little bit. And that's it. So you say a tiny little bit, but I, I, I know, I know. I heard what you said earlier, Connor, but for me, it's just it's a good episode, but it's just not good enough. So. For that reason, I'm giving it an eight out of a possible ten. Which um okay. still favourable. Okay. Matt now. Ooh. It's on me now, isn't it? Ooh. Yes, it is. Remember, this well, is your son's favourite episode. Yes, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I knew you'd play that card somehow. I really did. <laughs> I actually have to agree with Parry a little bit. Is mm. that I don't like the continuity between the newer and the older models. If, if they'd have stuck to the older models, it'd have ranked that little bit higher for me. Um, overall, good episode, good story, um, but it's going to be it's going to be a nine for me. I think. Not quite the ten. It's not quite there. Close, me, but you know, it's it's close. It's close. Very good. This is still a pretty solid score, everybody. Yeah, I mean, that's a still solid score. It averages out at some um, maths don't fail me now. It at about nine point three out of ten, I think. Sounds about right. I got that right. Yeah. Okay, there we are. So yeah. Let's move on, shall we? The next episode that we're going to cover is none other than Rusty and the Boulder. And now, Connor, I know this is a particular favourite of yours for a very special reason. Yes, it is. Uh, This was one of the first episodes I ever saw when I was having a haircut at Baby's R Us, when I was just a wee little lad. And it, it, it sung to me. And now I get to critique it and tear it apart. So, let us play the clip of one wet day high in the mountains of Sodor where a very concerned Rusty is eyeing a peculiar rock. When it rained, the workmen went away. Rusty gazed up and shivered. Above stood Boulder. Suddenly, a large slab of rock landed on the rails. Rusty was shocked. Driver was concerned. We'd best leave till the weather's better. The rain loosened some of this rock, he said. I think it's Boulder wanting us to go away, whispered Rusty. Yes, and this mysterious boulder that Rusty alludes to, obviously you can't see it right now because you're listening to a podcast and it's an oral medium. It's a boulder is a perfectly spherical rock which sits atop a giant cliff face. And it's underneath this cliff face that they're mining away at the cliff and gaining rock from it. And it's... Um, 
leading to the foundations becoming very unsolid. And um, yeah, I guess you can guess what happens next. But for, for those who want a full rundown of what happens, uh, Denim, why don't you tell us entire story of Rusty and the Boulder. Absolutely, Parry. So, in the episode Rusty and the Boulder, a quarry is being developed on the land below a large, ominous, round boulder that has sat on a hill for a long time. There is a heavy machine called Thumper who is helping to excavate the rock from the area, and Rusty, the little diesel, is a little bit worried about all the goings-on. He thinks that there's something more to this boulder than meets the eye. As he finds out the very next day, as the boulder falls onto the rails and rolls along Indiana Jones style, a pursuit of mayhem occurs. It almost knocks engines off the tracks, and uh, the likes of Rusty, Reneus, and Scar Lowy all face the boulder. And then in the final ultimatum, Percy meets the boulder at the quarry sheds where the standard gauge line meets the narrow gauge line, and the boulder crashes into the engine shed where it is engulfed into a big ball of flame. The Fat Controller then arrives to the scene and decides that they should have left this part of the island alone and then they put the boulder on a hill where it is never touched again. Mm. Uh, I, Aside from the huge set piece of this story, which is, of course, the boulder running away, and we will get to that in a moment, what I really love about Rusty and the Boulder is how there's this really subtle, uh, strongly environmental message at mm. the heart of this story, you know, because at the beginning we see a lot of industrialization, we see uh, working at the quarry, and it's sort of, when Boulder rolls down that cliff face and starts chasing the engines, it's sort of, to me, is this is nature fighting back. This is Mother Earth saying, how dare you? You know, <laughs> Get off my lawn. Exactly. That's what we're going for here. Um, oh, it's just... I, I mean, I just really, really, really love this story. And a oh, lot yeah. of people do. It's on all of the best of compilation videos. Uh, it seems to be within the... 10 of everybody's countdown it's just oh man you know i think it's fashion time oh fashion time oh huge i'm not a huge huge fan of this episode if i'm honest blasphemy oh 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 dear um okay no i think we should give matt an opportunity to defend himself um matt what is it that you why why doesn't this story grab you as much? There's a few reasons. One of them, I I do not like um, Angelus's narration in this episode. I I don't know why the voices he gives ooh, to all the characters ooh. sound the same. I don't know if you noticed that. But that's a fair point. He yells out "Yikes!" twice, and it's the exact same clip. It sounds like so. Actually, yeah, like well, hang on, that's not his fault. That's the editor's <laughs> fault. But he says that that actually that's a good point, Connor. Uh, has he used yikes the same way as he did in? Is it Runaway Toad? Where it is. Toad it's, um, away? is he going yes, backwards? Yes. Yes. It is the same clip used. Is that same voice clip used? I didn't know that. Yep. It's not Angelus's fault that yikes. 
has been played three Yikes. times. It was such a good clip that they had to use it. That's what the editors thought. I, I, I honestly, I um, do mm. love it. There's a great charm to it. But sorry, do go on that. The other reason I'm not that keen on it as well, uh, and this is more of a real realism point, I said to you, you know, and um, I think it was, I wasn't sure if it was Pari or Denim who asked, how does the real, realism come in compared to the series? This is what I'm getting to. Who sets the points? Ah, it's an excellent... Um... Uh, oh. I, I was gonna. I, I'm not saying it. No, I'm not finished that. But you like to say that very they're... excellent observation, Matt. Well done. And the other thing, sorry, this. Is the... I, I, I didn't want to say. <laughs> you were gonna I say don't point, want, point. I don't you? want to be a walking, talking cliche. Okay, <laughs> just train pump. Exactly. Train pump. Train pump. <laughs> the 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 last one is there seems to be very little in the way of sound effects. It's like when the boulder hits the tracks. You think about it, that's a massive boulder. That would make a hell of a noise hitting the ground. And it just mm, sort of goes, it would. and rolls. And um, how does it actually, turn around and come behind Rusty? God. Yes, that, that's a great point as well. Um, Sorry, I, 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 know, I, know, I, just, I know it's your favourites. I know that. I know you like this episode, but... You make very excellent... <laughs> They're valid points, points yeah. There, Matt. They are valid points. Um, it... it Oh, it's oh. valid points. Oh. He's, he's, he's defending prepared. his baby. <laughs> I have got rebuttals. <laughs> so, first of all, of course, the sound effect is thud. It isn't the best. However, in some other releases of it, uh, there is a bit more of an echo around it. Of course, there would be tons of sound when tons of rock hit the ground. However, this is just one big solid rock, and the sound of it echoing, I feel, should very much just be a thud and then the gradual echo. And I feel in this episode, that works really well for this is big. It is foreboding. It is not a kind of chaotic danger. It almost feels premeditated in its actions, but it is not a sentient boulder. I also want to step in here and say that um, if you have a surround sound system at home, because, of course, this episode is, uh, or the soundtrack, rather, is recorded in Dolby Surround Sound, um, definitely take advantage of that, because that definitely adds to the atmosphere of this story. And also, oh, if you've got a subwoofer anywhere in your home, connect it <laughs> your hi-fi system because the effect is then amplified. Oh, so wow. As if you think that the thud isn't good enough for you, then I'd recommend doing those two things. Get a surround sound system, get a subwoofer. It will just make everything better. Okay. I'll bear that I'm coming to your house you after, after <laughs> lockdown. <laughs> then, who sets the point? Who's that, to is say the, that, that is a question that needs all... answering. Go on. Okay, well, who's to say that the points are already set? There are only two, three instances where points may need to be used. One, which is when Rusty first runs away from the boulder and is by an old dead tree. Two is when he goes up an inclined siding to get away from the boulder. And three is when Galoi and Rusty, not Rusty, <clears throat> three slash four is when Scarloe and Reneus 
run away into their own sidings where Boulder then roars past them. Who's to say that those points weren't already set? Or that they were runaway points that automatically detect when an engine or something is going over a certain speed and automatically puts them in a place where they can't cause any more harm. Oh, yeah, this is true. I've never seen, I must admit, I've never seen an automatic point system like that before, especially on the narrow gauge railway. I could be wrong, but I've never seen it before. There's a nearby signal box somewhere where there's a signalman pulling levers for his life's sake. <laughs> block points, they're actually called in narrow gauge, aren't they? Signal blocks are in the, the big ones, but they're actually mm. called blocks in narrow gauge terms. Hmm. It's really and, like, who is to say that there isn't a signalman watching some of these events unfold, especially near the quarry where Rusty was initially? May, with Reneus and Scarloe, I haven't got an exact idea where a signalman may hide around a bush with a singular <laughs> lever, but it is certainly possible. He's probably jumping away just in case the boulder wipes him out. Oh, yeah. And how the boulder got behind Rusty in that one scene, I will admit that has vexed me for ages. But it's always possible that boulder went off track, rolled down a bit of a hill, yes, and then coincidentally rejoined the track. Like, like that is probably the biggest downfall on the, of this episode on how it's a lot of coincidence on how this boulder is rolling along, like its path it takes, and its sort of fast gathering of speed. Everything, but that can just be put down to coincidence mostly everything else or could it be could it be a second boulder there are two boulders oh <laughs> oh no um, oh, and they dear. get together and they that's have a obviously pebble. a bit of a strange oh, but... that's so cute <laughs> <laughs> sorry <laughs> continue but yes i yeah adore this episode um especially with its opening and with its ending it opens right into the action where it goes you know far away distant side of the island there was a boulder on a hill then one day men came to build a quarry immediately first sentence you have got a setup of the main danger and then the event that precedes it and then you get right into the conversation with our well-known characters. Some, there's some beautiful music at the start as well. And then Edward, Edward comes in with Thumper, or what is called Thumper, uh, who, by the way, isn't on any real basis, however, uh, does apply some kind of similar function to pneumatic drills and jackhammers uh, that are essentially just Put on its side, drilling into a rock face to loosen the rock. No, um, for a, a character who only appears in one story of the TV series, he has a lot of merchandise. He does. He's one of those one-hit oh, wonders yeah. that we talk about quite frequently. He doesn't say a word. True. This is true. And on that note, same <laughs> with the boulder. Now, I have a the theory about the boulder. Ab- 
on. Okay. 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 Um, I spoke about this a little bit in uh, Duncan Gets Spooked with why Duncan sees Scarlowy in his vision of the story. We notice that the boulder has a very striking resemblance to Gordon. Now, I think the boulder is not sentient, but I think from Russie's point of view, again, he can only imagine he can only imagine the faces that he has seen prior, and that's why it has such a likeness to Gordon. And this is where my main theory starts, because Hmm. Boulder Quarry has been seen in three episodes, Rusty and the Boulder, by George, and in Duncan Gets Spooked. In two out of those three episodes, something rather supernatural happens, and in by George, we barely get to see the quarry except we see mm. Scarlowy and Reneus working there, much like in this episode. Then, but that therefore means that because this episode has got the start and end of Boulder Quarry's construction and deconstruction, that means that by George and Duncan Gets Spooked needs to take place somewhere in the middle. Hmm. This is true. Now, my theory goes on the idea that the supposed location where this quarry is is somewhere off the Ulfsted line, apparently, which is nowhere near any narrow gauge connection, at least so far on the TV series. But if... Because it is so far away... It would make sense if you would have a few engines stationed there for a while. And studies have shown that one, when you are in a new location, and two, you are isolated far away from most other civilizations, such as high, high in the hills in an industrial quarry instead of near a town. And three, you're far from home, Spider Man. <clears throat> Then you are shown to hallucinate and go a little bit mad at times, which is where my idea of Rusty believing this rock is supernatural or Duncan seeing some fireflies in the shape of an engine. What you're essentially saying, Connor, is that these two stories of Thomas and Friends are like Lighthouse for children. Is that what you're saying? More or less, except they are not going insane. They are just stressed. They're just tapping into that insanity ever so slightly. Exactly. Just a little bit of insanity as a treat. Okay. <laughs> but, but yes. I like that theory. Thank you. Um, now, they're are a few other notes about this episode that I have. Not theory-related, don't worry. Um, of course, the boulder is inspired by um, Indiana Jones' Raiders of the Lost Ark, near the start of the film, where our protagonist, Indiana Jones, Dr. Jones, is chased through an old temple by a massive, perfectly spherical boulder. Um, I absolutely hate Boulder 
on the viaduct. Oh, yes. It is a single shot when the boulder is chasing Reneus. Uh, Reneus, the small-scale model, flies over the viaduct that we've seen in all the narrow gauge episodes, and the boulder follows close behind on it. It is so disproportionate because they're using the same model for both the large scale and small scale shots that it completely ruins the look of it. Well, I don't know about that, but um, I will say a couple of things. One, that boulder was moving way too fast for Reneas to outrun it. Two, is it possible for a bridge to hold up a rock of that size? Especially one that's moving and shifting its weight? Yes. Actually, don't have an answer to that. I just, I was just putting it out there. So, you know. Anyway, mm. carry on. And I, I, I've got one more question. Why do they put the boulder back on top of a hill? <laughs> At the end of the episode, they put boulder, the boulder, on top of a hill where his face looks back to where it once stood proud. Why? After this boulder... Yes, how how did they get it up the hill? Why did they put it back up there when it could just cause a similar disturbance? I don't know. I have a feeling, again, it's that argument about Mother Nature. You know, it's this feeling that the rock belongs on top of a hill and you mm. should put it back there and not tamper with it. You know, that's that's my theory. It's there as a warning. Ah, warning, yes. No, that's understandable. You know what would have been the icing on the cake? Possibly... A little too dark for Thomas, but it would have been such a fantastic way to end the story if rather than putting Boulder on a hill, they put him in a ditch of some kind so he can't go anywhere. And as Rusty trails away, you see the Boulder slowly submerge more and more into the sludge over time. But when it's completely submerged, oh. you see some little breathing bubbles uh, just at the very end. Oh, that's terrifying. They Oof. drowned it. Oof. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, what they should have done in the, with the boulder, in my opinion, is put it where Thomas actually fell into the mine to close it off. Yeah. Now, I have to make a confession. For some reason, in my childhood mind, I thought this was the last ever episode of Thomas the Tank Engine. Now, my reason behind this is because in the very first scene at the sheds, you see Percy and Thomas there talking to Rusty. In the following sequence, you only see Percy with the trucks there, and when the boulder collides towards the sheds, for some reason, I thought Thomas was in there, and they killed him off, and I thought that was it, that was the end, until we saw trailers for Thomas and the Magic Railroad. That's brutal. That's brutal. Um, wow. I, I was scarred as a child. <laughs> well, it wasn't that way for me. I was always under the... Because, you know, in your head, you've got the narration from the previous story saying, luckily, no one was hurt, etc., etc. So I just had that phrase in the... Ba- they don't say it here. They don't say it here, but I always have that phrase in the back of my mind. It's like, you know, no one ever gets hurt on the island of Sodor. Everyone lives. Yeah, yeah. Brake van, broken. Track controller, black eye. <laughs> Scruffy, you know. splinters. 
Okay, okay, you've made your point. <laughs> you've made your point, Connor. Okay, just stop now. Okay. I, I, I um, have got Well, time is running thing. away from us, so uh, shall we jump in? How was Boulder formed? Okay, quick. Because please. he is perfectly <laughs> spherical. Well, Connor, how does a duck quack? I mean, you know, it's it's nature. This is what happens when something wears away over time. You know, sometimes they do this. Oh, um, yes, but so spherical? Yes, it's possible. Look, Connor, I'm, I'm glad you've addressed this because there was a nearby sculptor who lived on the island of Sodor <laughs> and he really invested in the idea of using nature as his backyard. So as he practiced away, he chipped away at this uh, rock and eventually he had this fully uh, spherical boulder and he said, yep, that's good, I'm just going to leave it where it is. He overheard when, Henry, when Gordon was called Fat Face and he decided to take that literally... <laughs> and create a visage of Gordon, <laughs> just his face. Oh, that's class. No, no, no. But as you say, apparently, this is nature. Specifically, and I did some researching for this, because it has been a question that's plagued the community. Why is there this weird, perfectly spherical boulder on top of a hill when there's nothing else near it? The answer is... Concretion. Uh, to pardon. hang on, come again. What? Concretion. Concretion. It's... Do you want to explain what concretion is, Connor? Yes. To give a long science lesson into a very small one in a sentence or two, when sediment falls into some kind of mold, for example, uh, some smaller examples are. Eggshells, it will later concrete into a stronger substance when a catalyst or water or mud or other minerals get mixed in with the sediment. Then, as time erodes the landscape over billions of years, the boulder is nearly untouched due to its higher resistance to erosion than its surroundings. Some examples of this can be found in New Zealand, where there are hundreds of perfectly spherical boulders down by the beach. Or there's even uh, one, I believe, in Kansas City, America. Uh, Sorry. I believe there's also one in Rock City, America, where there are these near-perfectly spherical boulders that have been formed by nature specifically concretion. Oh, well, with that. There we go. And that is why Boulder is a hmm. perfect sphere when surrounded by nothing else. And with that, we can go on to the ratings without me interrupting. Okay, yes. Um, uh, who wants to kick off today, right now, this one, this story? Well, I, I really enjoyed this story. I think there's a lot to really like about it. Realism removed, um, it is entertaining. Um, but I do uh, bet off what um, Matt said. The characterization of some of the voices do blend in together. Um, but everything about it is dynamic. There's this, again, uh, like in Duncan Gets Spooked, there's this foreboding supernatural elements that's uh, tinkered into very nicely. Um, so for that reason, I'm going to give it a seven. 
Okay. Seven. Okay. Connor? Uh, I'm going to give it a 7.5. I... And that is with my bias aside, with my history with the episode. It is wonderful in its action. It's got tons of really good music, and it's got that slight supernatural in it. But again, Matt, as you said, the the dialogue falls flat at times, and too much is left up to coincidence. As much as I do say it can be explained with coincidence coincidence sometimes isn't enough to explain these things uh, um you've left me feeling really down now you two uh look i really really adore this story uh it's just got so many great moments in there there's the music there's the editing i do love the narration i love all the wacky shenanigans there's a bountiful amount of humor in this i think this story watching it i feel the same way that i do about the flying kipper it's just got all these really special Mm. magical moments in there and it just brings me so much joy to watch so for that reason rusty and the boulder gets a 10 out of 10 oh there we go expect that maybe did i Mm. Right. Okay. I'm um, going to put that aside for hate now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Right. Sorry, one thing I've got a question, Parry. Uh, this is a, no disrespect at all, but how can you compare Rusty and the Boulder to the Flying Kipper? Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I am said, wondering that. As I, as I said, it's just one of those things. It just makes me feel special. It makes me feel magical inside, and I just have a blast watching it. You know, would and... you say that this episode is comparable to Put Upon Percy? I would. I definitely would, Connor. Don't have a follow up to that. That's just it. But right. I think we found Parry's version of Better Late Than Never. <laughs> no, because Better Late Than Never got a much lower score from Parry and I. Hey, Better Late Than Never is good. Hang on, there was something we covered in this very season, I'm pretty sure. I gave it an excellent score, and you two were just like, eh. I can't remember what it oh, was. Oh, yeah, Thomas and the Rumours. That's what it was. It was Thomas and the Rumours. There we are, so... Hold on, hold on. I'll take back what I said. I think this episode is good, but it doesn't match up to Better Late Than Never. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well. I'm feeling nice today. Okay, Matt. Okay, Okay. Matt. Yeah, it would be... I actually haven't given my score yet. Yeah. (laughs) No, you haven't. Please, please hand it out. Right. Four out of ten. Oh, that's interesting. I'm sorry, there's too many inconsistencies in it. There's too many coincidences in it. There's, it, it just doesn't flow well. Mm. I don't know. I just I can't put my finger on why I'm not keen on it. I think it's just a multiple of factors. But bear in mind, my favourite season when I was a kid was season three. Mm. And my favourite season as an adult is season four. Because mm. you know, I've grown up with the cla- what I call the classic classics. Oh, and yeah. This is starting to get into the, the classic from here to eight is the classic, and then it's all downhill from there. Um, 
But yeah, I think because of that, it, I don't know, it just doesn't sit right for me. I don't know, it just doesn't. So, four out of ten. Pyrotechnics, though, they're brilliant. I must have. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But they are. Not every episode oh, ticks the boxes, so that's okay. So this has been most. This has been really, really bizarre though, because I would have thought this was the story that we all absolutely gushed over, and we've got just these scores all yeah, over we, the place. Yeah, we, we have got a four, a seven, a seven point five, and a ten, uh, which averages out to about seven point one. When you guys first started, oh, well. I actually thought this episode was going to be a full house. Really? When you first ever started the podcast. When you first guys ever started the podcast, because it was just, was it yourself, Denham and Connor? Yeah. yeah. Or was it? Yeah, yeah. And you were on about Rusty and the Boulder, and I thought, oh, you two are going to score that 10 out of 10. I no. Really did. No. Oh. Right there. Even 40 episodes in, we're still surprising all of our <laughs> listeners. So, well done. We're us. a great show. Or you could say... Spooks and surprises. Round of applause. Now, (laughs) from that, we are going to move on to our last musical interlude for season five of the Ride on Track podcast. And this time, we're not going to showcase any artist. We are going to showcase uh, one from the actual show itself. Harry? What we're listening to today, Connor, is. That's what friends are for. One of the many, many songs written by Mike O'Donnell and Junior Campbell during their time on the program. And, you know, I think it's rather fitting song for what is our season five finale. So let's give it a play.
Welcome back to the Right on Track podcast. That beautiful little song you heard there was from Mike O'Donnell and Junior Campbell from the original series of Thomas the Tank Engine and Friends. That's what friends are for. A really fitting note to end on series five. We've reviewed some fantastic stories so far. Tom Parry, what have they been? The episodes we have reviewed so far, Denim, are... Um, <laughs> that long pause out... <laughs> Duncan gets spooked rusting in the yeah, water. Okay, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Oh, you forgot. <laughs> well, it's been a long time. We recorded it three weeks ago. Okay. It's the you only Mirror's Age episodes in yeah. Series 5. I'm starting okay, okay, again. Okay. I'm not. So say, say what you're going to say. So you said that, Perry, what uh, stories we've... The stories we've reviewed so far, Mr. Denham, are Duncan Gets Spooked and Rusty in the Boulder. And now we're heading into the final story of Series 5, which is known simply as Snow. Is that it? It's, it's an elaborate title. Yeah, it's very sophisticated. Yes. It was winter on the island of Sodor. The snow covered fields and railway lines. All the engines were hard at work except Percy. Come on, Percy, this isn't time to have a rest. I'm stuck, moaned Percy, and my funnel's freezing up. Driver's sent for help. Ha! huffed Thomas and went on his way. Later, Thomas had to help clear snow by a tunnel, but it was too deep and he got stuck. Thomas was very cross. Snow is nothing but trouble, he moaned. Rusty was close by. Driver says that this winter is just about as bad as the worst winter of all. How worst? asked Thomas. I'll tell you, replied Rusty, and the little engine did. Yes, snow. It's joining the likes of coal, cows, escape, heroes, fish and bar in having just a single word as its title. Yeah. Yeah, and like I mean, it, it 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 sums itself up quite well. Snow, because it is the only episode in series five with snow. And here's something that I will give credit to series five for that series four didn't do. It has been tradition in the first three seasons of Thomas that we end with a festive episode, and this episode is somewhat festive. It's set during winter, so it works. It doesn't mean winter. It's still pretty. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. It is pretty. Snow makes nearly everything pretty. Especially the island of Snowdor. Island of Snowdor. Island of Snowdor. (laughs) Is that a new Game of Thrones character? Actually, yeah. Snowdor. I, I, I was thinking of Snowdonia. I was like, no, wait, that's not right. Oh. 
No, that's where Cody fell in. <laughs> yes, I know. His <laughs> counterpart. Anyways. Uh, Snow is the final episode of Series 5. And as we've pointed out already, it is an episode about Snow. It follows the story of Thomas, who follows the story of Rusty, who follows the story of Scar Lowy, the time when Scar Lowy was trapped underneath an avalanche of snow and how they rescued him. Yeah, it's really peculiar how this story begins because it has Thomas of his snowplow attending to Percy, who's stuck in a huge snow drift, and Thomas goes, oh, don't worry, Percy, stay there, I'll get you later. Uh, I wouldn't say he's like, don't worry, because he looks absolutely annoyed the entire time that he sees Percy. Oh, how could you get caught in the snow, Percy? Gee. Oh. We'll blame it on the (laughs) snowplows. Not the signalman? No. Blame blame it on the boogie. (laughs) No. (laughs) Anyways, continue on, Parry. Yes, so after Thomas passes Percy, he comes to a giant snow blockage near a tunnel, and it's there where he finds Rusty on the narrow gauge line trying to clear snowdrifts with his crew. And because they've got really nothing better to do, the two of them just decide to swap stories, and Rusty tells of the time that Scarlowy got caught in an avalanche. But it's a very peculiar how he tells the story because Scarlowy himself doesn't actually speak. It's only his driver and following. Mm, there, there is a single line which could include Scarlowy, which is the word avalanche. But that is multiple people speaking at once, so you really can't tell mm. if that's Scarlowy or not. Yes, quite. This is eerie. I think this is the longest white noise we've ever had. <laughs> yeah, well, it is of a story. Like, I mean, we've had stories within stories before with Grandpuff. Yet the issue here is that I would say it's been executed rather poorly. I don't think the story. It's been. Hmm. It's an empty episode. Story depth. Is no, I think you're right there, mm. Matt. I mean, the story, the, the story, uh, it, th- there's not a lot to work with here. There's not really all that much conflict. You know, it's it's just kind of meh. It's like, you know, have an episode here. Yeah, it's a meh episode. I'll defend it in the regard that as a youngster, this episode definitely captured my attention. And I think that was down to. Uh, watching Series 4, I understood how the incline mm. worked. And so seeing it again was a bit of a buzz, but seeing it um, in a way that we haven't seen it break before uh, uh, was really cool. I used to watch as well. It was the first time they used detonators. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which come back again eventually in the following season. Yeah, what really does excel in is sort of bringing more attention to what Parry and we've all been calling it the human element, but I feel these engines because it brings more attention to the, you know, operation of the incline, uh, attention to the snowbank that stops runaway trucks. Good job it did. It brings meters and, you know, snow drifts and how not a 
plow through the snow. If you get stuck, you're stuck there forever. It is. It takes time and manpower or woman power to dig through the snow. So it. So it does have a lot of good, really. This is what I think this episode does, where I think it's a strength and a weakness at the same time. This story feels like a documented series of events rather than a story with a moral. Yes. Because at the end of the story that Rusty tells, he says, one thing is for sure, you can't trust trucks or snow. It's There's no real, I guess, um, character arc. It just feels like a whole string of events that mm. happens. And it could very well be that David Mayman looked at these events and kind of went, hmm, this will be good for an episode. But there's no, I guess, real lesson in mm. it either. Well, well, I... Yeah, it's a mishmash. What what I would use to describe this story is it is a and then. It always feels like yeah. it, it's a story of uh, the wonderful uh, hills of the Narrow Gauge Railway are yeah, one uh, like great thing. But when snow comes, it's like this. One day, Scullo was going along, and then the incline started to malfunction, mm. and then Scully... Scarloe tried some detonators and then he stopped for a break and then and then and then and it just doesn't really flow from one scene to the next as it's got a ton of different stories happening sort of within it It, it, like you've got the Percy thing at the start which has no sort of attention at all to the rest of the story and Percy's just stuck there as far as we know and then and then you have the Thomas Rusty story, and then the Scarlowy in the ravine with the detonators, and then you have you know the the incline story, and then the incline Scarlowy do collide, but then nothing else happens, and then the end of the episode's even more confusing. It seems mm. to have undone quite literally all the hard work that has been done up to that point. It feels like there's a lot of comic relief in this episode. Like, there's a beginning with Percy stuck in a snowdrift, and then you have um, the scene where the driver and fireman are drinking cocoa. That's funny to some effect. Um, and which mm. I think as well, it's worth touching on it. It feels like a very Audrey thing to do, to have the driver and fireman drinking cocoa as if Nothing happened. But then I think the even bigger comic relief, which feels very shoehorned in, was um, Gordon blowing through with his snow machine. Whilst it looks great, it doesn't really add anything to the story. Yeah, we, we, we should really add, at the very end of the episode, just after Rusty tells his story, Gordon comes through with his own snow machine, mm. which apparently was supposed to have a wooden railway toy, except it was never produced, and you only ever see like sharp glimpses, mm. uh, glimpses, sharp glances of the snow machine. You never get a full look at it, and he's like coming through, and in fact, you only see Gordon's face for one shot out of the whole thing, and then <laughs> yeah. And the snow falls on top of him, it falls on top of Rusty, falls on top of Thomas, literally undoing the moral of the story that they've just said in the entire episode, and all the hard work the workmen have done to dig out Rusty and Thomas from the snowdrift. 
And that's when the snow's falling on top of him. Like, like I mean, it's it's dramatic irony in that sense that this episode tries hard to have a you know a, a moral or something at the end, and then and then it literally undoes that with a shoehorned comic relief. Mm. As I said, did I hear a cat purr then? Yeah, that was a moped. Yeah, mm. sorry. That was a moment. I thought it was a cat. <laughs> Sorry about that. I've got to have my window open. It's just too hot to have the windows closed. That's all good. I thought it was Connor's cat. That's all good. That's all good. <laughs> Gee, the cat must have been really close to the mic there. Well, I, like, I mean, I w- one thing I will give for this episode, apart from all its sort of railway... Uh, realism is that whilst Rusty is telling the story, the main crux of it is entirely directed by human characters. Which is another one of those times, much like um, Lady Hat's birthday party, where it is a human character-centric episode. I I would feel that this is a very human character episode. It's not. Um, um, I really don't know where to head from what we've said, to be honest, because this story, what what is there to say? I mean, what happens? What's the purpose of it? Oh, sorry. I was going to say, you look at you look at the ending of say, you know, season one and two, where they had big Christmas parties. So mind that bike, you know, it was. Oh, okay. I was going to say, so, you know, you've come off a high, like, mind that bike, to just an ending that's, like, hollow and a bit, like, well, that's that then. Um, you know, as opposed to a big finish and leaving you wanting more. Yeah. It's just like, oh, train gets stuck in snow, another train gets stuck in snow, and that's it. But it's not a very interesting one. Yeah, like, okay, here's a question for you guys, because... What, like one of the most beautiful shots is that avalanche uh, sequence. You see Scarloy looking up, you see snow falling, and then trucks falling and broken trucks after they have broken away from the incline and crashed through the snowdrift and everything. It's a wonderful sequence. But then the situation arises that as they dig out um, the snowball, the snowhouse, the engine that is Scarloy, they find that he has been entrapped in a massive icicle that has protected him and his crew. Now, I've got a fair few questions here, such as, one, an icicle would probably form, like, I mean, a lot slower. And in um... Hold on one second, Connor, because what's happened with Scarlowy is that because the snow's fallen on top of him, right? Yes, but it's fallen on top of him. Mm-hmm. But he's, he's very warm. He's an engine. He's got a boiler. And so the boiler is generating heat, and that heat is generating humidity or moisture. And then the snow is freezing that moisture, and that's what's creating the igloo. That is a fair enough point. But now the question is, how long would his crew have to survive? 
Give it a day. Well, given that they've got hot cocoa and a warm boiler to keep them warm, I, I would say that, you know, they'd last quite a while. I think, having raised this point, I think the more interesting story would be Scarlowe's driver and fireman and, and Scarlowe himself trapped in that igloo slash ice house and seeing, you know, what they do, how they manage the situation, what kind of conversations they'd have with each other. I think that would be a much more interesting story than the workman going, oh, look, it's an igloo, and then trying to dig them out. Yeah, like, like I mean, it would be a much more dark story, but it would be a lot more interesting, even for a kid. And have a good moral as well. Yeah, yeah. have a good moral. Stay positive, even when the books are down. That's a great idea. That, that would have been so much better. But sadly, we do not live in the fictional realm of great right-on-track ideas. Oh, <laughs> I do. Um, now, of course, this being the last episode of Series 5, there are a few interesting things about this. Uh, Mm -hmm. such as how it is David Maidment's last episode as a railway consultant. Mm -hmm. It is David Mitten's last episode as a producer. Ah. And it is Britt Allcroft's last episode as a producer and writer before becoming an executive producer in Series 4. I mean... Six. Before coming... Before becoming an... Executive producer in series six. There you go. A lot of ends there, which is quite sad. Mm. Well, it's the it, it's always the end of a series that there's always end of something, uh, especially the crew. Another thing that um, is particularly well, I think it's interesting about this story is it's the last time we get to see the small scale models of the narrow gauge engines. Yes, yes. Or small-scale model of the engine, the engine being rusty. But you also do have the small-scale model of the slate incline. Ah. Because they rebuild that set in the larger scale. So all the trucks you see looking and chatting to each other are completely different faces and everything from the trucks that run away from the incline. Mm. So, something to look out for when uh, watching the episode, uh, which, which is a goof, of course, but we can't blame that on budget. Uh, no, we, we can only blame that on budget. But, on that note, rankings. Well, I'm not particularly keen on this story. I think it's one of maybe two stories in series five that I don't find myself enjoying or look forward to watching again. Um, Mm -hmm. It's very beautiful seeing Sodor in the snow as always. I think that the avalanche is pretty awesome. I'll, I'll give credit to that, but the rest of it, it it just feels like a bunch of nothing. So for that reason, I'm going to give it a four out of 10. Wow. Denim. Well, it's interesting because there are elements I like about this story, but at the same time, as we've spoken about it, 
it also feels very lackluster. I would argue, and I've got some interesting evidence to back me up here, I would argue that Rusty and the Boulder feels more like a season finale. Uh, be- it ends mm. with an explosion. It does. It ends with a bang. Um, what's yes. interesting about the spooks <laughs> and surprises of VHS City could get here in Australia at the time. The last episode on it was Rusty and the Boulder. They mixed up the order with that and Snow. So mm. that's how I always thought Thomas the Tank Engine ended. <laughs> Thomas exploded. Um, but I think... <laughs> <laughs> With what we've got here, I think, yes, it is nice to see the little boys again, um, but it feels like not a lot happens. There's untapped potential. Uh, 4.5. Connor. Matt. <laughs> oh, I knew that. I knew you were going to say that. Um, uh, uh... Right, okay, let's look at the positives. Okay. If we can. Okay. Yeah, no, go uh, for it. It's very pretty. Mm-hmm. It's very pretty. They've got detonators. Gordon has an amazing piece of equipment mm-hmm. and a little bit of humour. That's it. The bad point, mm-hmm. it's very hollow. It doesn't end the series well for me. It really doesn't. It just, oh, I don't know. It's, uh, I'm just not that keen. Uh, so for that, I'm going to give it a four. Mm. Well, Connor, I sense that you do not have some very pleasant things to say about snow. Like, I, I, I'm, I'm going to be honest here. I would rather skip this episode. <gasps> oh. Because the thing is, I, I, I do not like this episode. It... I would be rather down an episode in series five, only having 25 episodes, than have snow. And like, I mean, granted, we wouldn't have snow in series five, but even on that note, we've always loved this snow and soda. It looks magical and beautiful, but in the changes series five had with the lighting, the, the snow looks almost contrasting white like i mean there are three good shots in this entire episode one is the avalanche and then the other two are the two opening shots of stock footage from series two because they look like good snow the rest almost looks like caster sugar (laughs) or icing sugar that's pretty harsh well, well, I'm not done. I'm not done. Oh, he's not okay. done. Buckle him, boys. Yes, the popcorn. <laughs> like the episode. Here we go. <laughs> yeah, a, a, as we say, the episode is hollow. Not only that, it brings up points that aren't even addressed. Poison. <clears throat> Case in point, Percy. He is literally the first engine you see in the entire episode. And if you were just counting the first, say, 20 seconds of the episode before Thomas meets Rusty, you would feel that Percy was a main character because it opens with him in some kind of trouble. Uh, Like, this episode, I would feel, would work really well as this is Thomas really 
disliking the snow, but needing to come to terms on how he needs to put his dislikes aside and just be a really useful engine. Instead, we get a hollow, bland story whose only benefits are three good shots, two aren't even from the series itself, and a tiny bit of railway realism. The rest, it it just fails at doing. The comedy falls flat and shoehorned. I'm going to give it a two. I felt that. I, as much as I ranked uh, it a four, I actually can't blame you, Connor. I'm sorry, I can't blame you. Yeah, yeah. Look, I can reason with you as well. Yeah, then we'll give it a two. No, come on. No, no. <laughs> I, I'm a, I'm a man of my word. <laughs> I'm. I don't but... have many words, but I'm a man of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, man of I. Yeah, you didn't even have enough words to finish that sentence properly. No, I don't often have many. M- many what words? Oh, I ran out. <laughs> oh no. Okay. Whew. But I'm afraid that brings us to the end of episode forty of the Right on Track podcast and the end of series five of Thomas the Tank Engine and the podcast. Yes, indeed. Um, so we've discussed it before in the bonus episodes, but um, we haven't really addressed it on a proper podcast episode ourselves. So the organisation where we've seen, there is this rule where once you turn 26, um, you have to stop broadcasting. I have just turned 26. Denim will be turning 26 soon, and that means we are going to have to wrap up the Right on Track podcast for the time being, but the good news is we won't be going away. We'll still be keeping active on social media, and we hope to uh, shop the podcast around to bring you even more seasons in the years to come. I, I, I'm actually excited to review as much as we take the mick out of denim for his constant endearment of it. I'm really excited to re- uh, to review Thomas and the Magic Railroad. And, like, talking about all the time up until now, Season 5 has been an absolutely amazing season. Like, like, like I mean, uh, we have covered so many great episodes because they got a bigger budget in Season Mm 5. There were so many more interesting crashes, shots. We got a fair few characters, even though some we only see for one cough, cough, Derek. <laughs> the, the, like, like it has been an amazing episode, and we'd like to thank you all for coming for the ride. Yes, indeed. And we'd also like to take this opportunity, of course, to thank our guest, Matthew Bellis. He was one of the earliest fans of the Right on Track podcast. He's been giving us so much support. Uh, Matt, we would like to thank you very much for coming on today and sharing your thoughts with us. It has been an absolute pleasure to have you as part of the podcast. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Uh, please check it out. It's called Tracked and Tested. Uh, it's all about model railways. I'm in the process of just starting to build uh, a double, well, 009 scale Scarlowy Railway. So you can see my progress on that when I get all the bits in. So please keep an eye for that. A big thank you to all the other guests we've had on this series and the show in general because in episode one of series five we had brendan rise 10 
episode three, we had Headmaster Hastings. Um, then in mm-hmm. episode six, we had Jason, sidekick Jason. And, and now, of course, here in episode eight, we've got Matthew here. And how can we forget oh, yeah. Michael O'Donnell for our wonderful interview? Thrill having him on board. And not, not just him as well, of course. Remember last season we had Rob Gould Galliers as well. You know, two people who have helped to shape yes. the early seasons yeah. of the show. They're pretty much the reason why it's so popular, dare I say it, because, you know, they help to shape the look and sound of the show. Mm. And they're two of the people who helped the show to become so popular and to help and who really allowed the show to hook fans like us. Oh, yes. And whilst we're saying thank yous, um, I think it's really important as well that we say a huge thank you to Sin Media. They have uh, made this podcast possible and uh, their podcast uh, managers have been really supportive. Their staff has been really supportive. Uh, So a big, big heartfelt thanks to them as well. Without them, we probably wouldn't be here. Definitely not. Yeah. But you can be guaranteed that when we return, we'll return bigger and better than ever with tons of new content for you guys, tons of more guests, Hopefully, tons of more interviews. We'll see how that goes. I'll be bigger as well. (laughs) The the winter coat is setting in. Yes, it is. But until that time comes, I've been Connor. I've been Parry. I've been Denim. And I've been Mutt. And this has been the Right on Track podcast. See you guys. Thank you so much. So long. See you later.